Thanks, Steve. Hey, good morning to you. You all right? Good. Uh, I hope uh, Mother's Day was good for you. I want to give thanks for uh, Steve Lindemeyer stepping into the pulpit here last week and teaching on Psalm 112. If you haven't seen that or missed last week because you were uh, caring for your mom or traveling or whatever, I would encourage you to go and take a look at Psalm 112 and listen to that message. Uh, when you work on a staff team with uh, professional Christians, uh, as I put that you know, in air quotes, you know, we, we get paid to be Christians. Uh, there's a lot in Christianity today that uh, makes you skeptical about spiritual leadership, uh, that you will hear stories of people whose uh, private lives come out in the public. Uh, and that's seldom a, a fun and encouraging thing, that, well, who they are on stage is exactly who they are behind the scenes. That's never the story that's reported. Uh, when Steve Lindemeyer preaches on Psalm 112, I have seen this brother live Psalm 112. So when Steve Lindemeyer teaches from Psalm 112 about the ways he's walked with God, the principles from the scriptures that he's put into practice in his own life, I have seen that in his life. So when Steve speaks about those things, it's not necessarily just a sermon fill-in. It's a man who stands before you who lives the word of God. Uh, so I want to encourage you with that. And I would say that about uh, our entire staff team, that these are men and women who walk with God consistently, who ask God, what does he think, who ask uh, about their lives and the spiritual struggles they're dealing with, that they go to the word of God through uh, the spirit of God and in prayer to God and live these truths out. That's why we stand up uh, as a church and we have these, uh, these guys come and preach to you. So uh, I give thanks for Steve and his willingness to preach and to be uh, in front of you last week. So we're back in the book of Revelation. Grab your Bibles. If you've got them, there should be one right around you somewhere, a uh, black one. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Go ahead and take it, read it till the back uh, pages fall off, and then come back and get another one. And uh, we want to keep you well stocked with Bibles. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 9. So turn to the very last book of your Bible. And I'll get my Bible open here too so that I'm not talking off the cuff. Revelation chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Uh, today, Revelation chapter 9 is a supernatural chapter. Uh, if you thought uh, demon locusts from the pit of hell released upon humanity with scorpion tails, hair like women, teeth like lions, and uh, fa human faces were bad, be encouraged, it gets worse. So... <laughs> Uh, Revelation chapter 9 is going to be the sixth trumpet that we've seen. We've been through the six seals. Now we're into the final, uh, the, middle, the middle section of judgment in the book of Revelation. And we're going to see the six trumpets. Uh, we're in the middle of the second woe, which is another frame of the last three trumpets. are also called woes. And then we're going to move into another biographical section in chapter 11 through about 16 that's going to take a look at characters in the Bible, we've, we've said, or characters in the book of Revelation, we've said that uh, Revelation works not just on chronology about the end times, but also works with biography to show you characters and individuals and personalities and things that are happening behind the physical realm. And in the book of Revelation, much like the book of Genesis, you have the physical and the spiritual coming near again. Uh, that they are uh, right next to each other, and that's how this, this book works. So, uh, last time when we were in the book of Revelation, we talked about uh, demonic warfare. 
We talked about false teaching and false systems. Uh, We talked about the prince of the power of the air, and we read here from Ephesians chapter 6 this morning and talked about being on guard against the schemes of the devil. And we said that demons work in a culture to primarily deceive, to set up ways of disbelieving that God has sent his son in the flesh as a sacrifice for sin to reconcile man to God. And any other world system, any other religious line of thought or philosophy is set up against that. And that was what we said last, night, last time in looking at demonic warfare and spiritual warfare that happens in a culture is that, frankly, it's all around us. It's in the media, it's in Facebook posts, it's in Uh, theories about how life works, and any theory or world system or worldview that goes against what the scripture said uh, has behind it a demonic power. So uh, what we're going to look at today in a chapter that is perhaps the most supernatural and spiritual chapter in your Bible, were the demon locusts scary? Did you get a little nervous reading about demon locusts from the abyss? I did. I feel like you read this chapter and you go, gosh, I didn't even know this was out there. Maybe this is a part of your Bible that's kind of a clean part of your Bible where you've never even read that before. And you go, I went to church and heard about demon locusts with scorpion tails. And I don't know what that means for me. Well, uh, today, as we look into the next layer, the sixth trumpet, we're going to look at something more scary. In fact, this chapter holds together really on the last two or three verses, that it allows you in these last two or three verses of chapter 9 to interpret the entire chapter correctly. Otherwise, you get into weird stuff in trying to interpret Revelation chapter 9. Unless you have the last two verses of Revelation chapter 9, you're not going to understand the chapter at all. And this, these last two verses that we're going to deal with as a church are perhaps the most important idea in your spiritual life right now. In fact, the way this chapter ends might be the most scary place in the entire book of Revelation up to this point. And it won't have anything to do with demons as much it'll have, as it'll have to do with humans. Whereas last week we saw the, uh, the false teaching and the demons let loose upon humanity. Today we're going to look at humanity. And we're going to look at how humans respond to the spiritual realm. And I would argue that as we get into this today, that there's one particular action, one particular spiritual discipline and spiritual practice that perhaps is the one that you and I avoid the most, but that carries with it the greatest opportunity of intimacy with God, the greatest opportunity for true and authentic fellowship in a church. And it's the doorway into real spiritual maturity for you. And I believe that this one practice, if you put this into play in your Christian life, the thing that you hate to do and avoid doing at all costs, typically, because I know I do it too, if you take the word of God seriously, that you will experience greater intimacy with God, greater relational depth with others, and greater spiritual maturity in your life. Anybody want that? Do you want that in your life? I want that in my life. And this text is going to be somewhat of a what not to do kind of text, okay? So let's pray, ask God for his grace, and then we'll jump into this here together. Pray with me. Father in heaven, 
As we come to your word this morning, we pray for soft hearts, for open eyes, for wise minds. We pray that your spirit of God would apply the word of God to the hearts of your people here this morning. And for those of us who come in perhaps skeptical or uncertain or discouraged, we pray that because of Jesus Christ, your spirit would meet us in the scriptures. That Jesus as the way and the truth and the life might give light to our eyes and the unfolding of your word would create in us something new, something that we will give you glory for. So, Father, bless us as we study and as we learn, and most of all, bless us as we apply your word to our hearts and our minds and our lives, that we would be uh, men and women of God who are authentic in our spiritual lives, that we would be honest about who we are, that we would be dependent people upon your word and your spirit, and that we would know the grace and the mercy of God poured out for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray that that would be true of our church. I pray that it would be true of me and the men and women in this room and those who watch online. Father, we ask for your blessing. It's in Christ's name, amen. All right, Revelation chapter nine, y'all there? No? Okay, that's fine. I'm just going to keep going. I don't, even, I don't care if you're there. You can white read it on the screen, and that's okay. We're going to go through it together. Revelation chapter 9, here's where we're going to be, verse 13 to the end of the chapter. This is the verse 12. You see there, the first woe has passed. Behold, the two woes are still to come. The second woe goes from 9.13. You see all the way to the end of chapter 11. You see that in your Bible? You can watch how the, the woes break up. Now, here's your second woe that is, exists in the sixth trumpet. Look at verse 13. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Now, we've seen this altar before, probably the altar of incense, uh, by which the incense of God and the prayers of the saints ascend before God, and God now responds to the cries of judgment from the martyrs and those who have come out of the great tribulation period, that they are asking for vindication and for justice to fall because of the murder that they have experienced. And now there's, it's almost as if the, the altar is either, uh, it's either God who speaks from the altar or the altar in a sense is personified with a great divine amen. And now this voice from the altar echoes forth. Here's what it says in verse 14, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, have you seen the, the repetition in the book of Revelation? Remember the four horsemen that began, that led out with the release upon the forces of humanity, societal and political and um, relational forces that were pulled back. And then you saw four uh, angels over the winds from the north, south, east, and west who held back the winds of God as the, uh, the people of God were sealed. Well, now you have the next four individuals, the four angels that show up here that are bound. Now, these are probably demonic angels, just like they were in, the, in this chapter. This whole chapter has been dealing with demons particularly. Elect angels are never said to be bound anywhere in Scripture. So these angels are another class of demonic angels. And you see where they're bound? They're bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, the great river at Euphrates isn't mentioned in the New Testament. It's an Old Testament reality. The, the river Euphrates is the far northernmost part of the nation of Israel. It was the area to which Solomon ruled and reigned during his day. 
And when Solomon ruled and reigned, it was the greatest height of Israel's uh, power and authority during that time. That it said that Solomon ruled from the great river of the Euphrates all the way down to Egypt and Mesopotamia. So he had a great kingdom. Uh, they're the boundaries of the land. And uh, when you look at the great river Euphrates, the great river Euphrates is where invasion comes from the north. So that when Assyria invades, they come across the great river. When Babylon invades and um, I'm sorry, when Assyria invades and they go to war, one of the world powers that's existing at the time with Assyria is Egypt. And Egypt and Assyria both face off in the scriptures at the river Euphrates. When Babylon shows up, Babylon comes across the great river Euphrates. Now, great river Euphrates is a real place, right? It's mentioned all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 as one of the four great rivers that came out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates were the four great rivers that came out of the springs of, uh, of Eden. And the interesting thing I just want to take note of here is we're moving through perhaps one of the most spiritual and supernatural and demonic places here in the book of Revelation is again, we have a real place on earth. Now earlier in the chapter, we talked about the abyss and the abyss didn't have a zip code. We didn't know where the abyss was. It wasn't a place that really came to our minds. We knew it was a spiritual place, a dungeon, as it were, where demons were released. But here we have the mention of a real, physical place that's in eastern Turkey. Well, why does that matter? Well, remember how the book of Revelation starts? That you have the seven letters to the churches, right? Laodicea, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and all these other churches, right? Real places that were all existing in eastern, western Turkey at the time. So that when you read Revelation, you know, a lot of times when you um, go watch a movie, if you go and watch, uh, you know, a Marvel movie, that you have the, the, the supernatural, as it were, or the amazing or the miraculous existing right next to normal people, Right? That's the draw of these movies, that these movies draw us into a story that says there's more to life than what we see. You agree with that? And when you watched Harry Potter, remember Harry Potter? There's a, a real place called Hogwarts at a train station that you somehow get to by running into a pole, right? And, and there's a miraculous kind of world that exists alongside the natural world. And that's true. And the scriptures bear that out. Because when you read the book of Revelation, it tells you there are real angels bound for a real time at a real river that you can go and see today. That the Bible won't allow you to allegorize or spiritualize angels and demons. It puts it right in your face. It's like saying the four angels were bound in Monk's Corner. You go, well, I can, I can drive there right now. You can go and see images of the real Euphrates River today. So that God is doing this to let you know that there is a spiritual reality associated with your physical reality. And to take that seriously. So here are these angels bound at the great river Euphrates. Take a look at verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Has God flown off the handle in the book of Revelation? No, he hasn't. That, that all of the judgments that have happened in the book of Revelation have been surgical and precise. 
that they have stepped consistently forward to respond to the rebellion, the hatred of God, the hatred of Jesus, and the hatred of his people. It's been a sequential unfolding of the wrath of God. It hasn't, you didn't get to seal one and God obliterates the planet and it's over. And now we have this moment of preparation where earlier in chapter 9, the demons were in the abyss and held there for a certain time until they're released. Here we have four angels who are held at the great river Euphrates. Watch the phraseology. Who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year. It's down to the hour that God knows when these angels will be released that he has a purpose and a design and a plan to the book of Revelation. God's not arbitrary. His revelation judgments are surgical, precise, planned, directed according to his purposes and his will. This is what the lamb does when the lamb receives the scroll of the universe to bring about the ultimate purposes of God. And he unrolls the scroll, sounds the trumpets, releases the bowls that he is bringing history to its desired end. And here are these angels that are prepared for this moment in this time to do what God would have them do. And look at what they're called to do. They're called to kill a third of the mankind. Now, the fourth horseman, uh, had authority over a quarter of the earth. And we said if the earth population is about two billion at that point, that the fourth horseman had the authority to kill with the sword two billion people. So now we're down to six, notwithstanding any other deaths that had happened because of pestilence or plague or murders or things that have happened before. Let's say, conservatively speaking, we're down to six billion people. Now we have a third of that, again, are given into the hands of these four horsemen, and now we're at four billion. Another two billion are gone. Just to put this in perspective, this is greater than the combined casualties of every war that has ever happened. That this is a holocaust on the planet to lose four billion people up to this point in the book of Revelation, conservatively speaking, probably more than that these angels are released. Verse 16, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Can you do that math? Kind of confusing. Two million. That these four angels who are released have now morphed, as it were, or released to lead an army of two million people on the earth against six billion. When you read in the Psalms, it, it talks about the, the sheer numbers of the angelic realm. It's fascinating. Psalm 68 says this, that the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. Remember Revelation 5? Revelation 5 said this, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That there are millions of angels and millions of demons. And here's John writing in his scroll as he hears the numbers of two million demonic angel armies get released upon the planet. Now, last week we said that the, or two weeks ago, we said that the locust horde was released for five months and they were allowed to torment people but, and that people would seek death and they would not find it. Death would flee from them. And we said that this was a, a measure of God's mercy upon the planet, that there was torment, but there was not death, that there was continued opportunity to receive 
the message of salvation in the gospel through the preaching of the 144,000. In a couple of weeks, we'll see the preaching of the two witnesses. But now death returns. Look at verse 17. This is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, which will correspond to the plagues that come from their mouths. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads. The fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. This is worse than the locust judgment. Fire, probably the color of red. Sapphire, probably the blue to go with smoke. And yellow, the color of sulfur. And when you hear these these terms, these colors will be used consistently throughout the book of Revelation, consistently to refer to hell. That they're the colors of hell that now has been unleashed upon the earth. Sulfur is only mentioned one time in your Old Testament. It has to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. That Sodom and Gomorrah have fire and sulfur rained down upon them. Verse 18, by these three plagues, a third of the mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents. Remember what we said last week about the scorpion tails? That scorpion tails don't kill, typically. They inflict pain and torment. Now, tails today that are from serpents kill. These serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. You see the term? We haven't seen this term in the book of Revelation yet, but it's right at the beginning of verse uh, 18 there. You see that? By these three what? Plagues. Plagues will be mentioned at least 10 more times from this point forward in the book of Revelation. It's the very first point uh, in the book where plagues have been mentioned. Now, plagues are, uh, they're not very common in the New Testament. You don't find a lot of the Greek referring to plagues. Some people will refer, some uh, world uh, political leaders refer to Paul as a plague in their day, which isn't a compliment, you can imagine. Uh, He's called a pest. Uh, But plagues are very common in the Old Testament, aren't they? That they first show up uh, on plagues upon Pharaoh when Pharaoh tries to take uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife. Plagues show up at the Philistine camp when the Ark of God, during the time of Samuel, rests in their villages, that plagues break out on everyone. But perhaps the most common place that you would think of when we mention plagues is the book of Exodus, is it not? That the ten different plagues that now come down upon the nation of Egypt uh, are probably the most significant ones in all of your Bible up to this point in the book of, uh, or really until we see the book of Revelation. And those plagues come in response to Pharaoh hardening his heart and refusing to do what God says. Well, we're going to see that a similar story here in Revelation chapter 9. So let's look here at verse 20. Uh, And actually, here's what I want to just highlight here. Before we get into this next two verses, these next two verses are are really the most important verses uh, up to this point. Because these two verses show us something about ourselves and they show us something about the spiritual and the demonic that uh, are frankly frightening. Because you've been waiting to see. Haven't you had this question? As you've watched the, the judgments of God fall, and you're watching martyrs come into God's presence, having washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. 
you have this nagging question in the back of your head of why don't more people turn, don't you? They're seeing uh, the people in the book of Revelation understand what is happening. That their response is not because of lack of information. All the way back in Revelation chapter 6, you've seen these people on the earth watch the sky roll back like a scroll and they say, hide us from him, from him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? But mankind on earth at this time is not without sufficient information. God has not left himself without witness. And the reasons for that show up in verse 20 and verse 21. So look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. It's stronger in the Greek than we can make it here in English. It sounds passive, doesn't it? It just sounds like they're somewhat apathetic to the hordes of demonic horse armies that wound people and kill them with fire and smoke and sulfur from their mouths. It's actually stronger in the Greek than that. It's, it's probably better to say that they refused to repent. That it doesn't matter how much pain that they're experiencing. It doesn't matter how many consequences for their rebellion and their sin and their unbelief are being rained down upon this planet. They refuse to turn. They refuse to repent. Now, what, repent of what? What should they repent for? Well, John tells us here in Revelation 9, they did not repent of the works of their hands. Uh, works of the hands is a, is a somewhat of a consistent term in your Bible for idolatry. It's that mankind left to himself uh, will not be an atheist. You have to educate someone out of their spiritual and religious mindset to make them an atheist. But by and large, around the planet, every single world culture and world system has some element of religiosity to it. There's some way in which they make sense of good and evil and right and wrong and sin and mercy and grace and God and man and sin and all the problems of humanity. They have to fit it into a world system. But the problem is, is that when you remove the infinite personal God and remove his son coming to die on the cross for sins, what you're left with are these facsimiles or these substitutes or uh, elusive um, world religious systems. Nowhere is this clearer than in the book of Romans. If you want, you can turn back. Keep your finger there in Revelation 9. Let me show you this from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Man is not naturally an atheist. 
when mankind steps into the world and he or she is born, God has left himself with sufficient evidence and witness in the creation. This is what Psalm 19 says. The heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation echoes the glory of God, even though wounded and broken by sin. But mankind suppresses the truth so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their what? In their thinking. Their mind isn't right. And their foolish hearts were darkened. What did that affect? Well, now it affected the center of who we are. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, that our minds are darkened, our hearts are broken. 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, come back to Revelation. Now, watch this. They didn't repent of the works of their hands, nor of doing something else. Look at the remainder of the verse. They did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons. Well, that's what we've seen already in this book. That's what we talked about last week, that every single world system that is set up has behind it, while it's a false system, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that that which people worship of idols are not any god, but rather, he says, the Gentiles make their sacrifices to demons. So mankind creates idols that are not true gods, they're false gods, and behind them is true demonic power and presence to delude and to deceive people into believing that those things are true. So mankind will make idols. They did not stop worshiping idols, nor worshiping demons. Now look at what it says here. And the idols, they did not give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. Why does he do that? Why does he give us gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood? Like, how does that help you and me? Why is that important for us to know? How many of y'all have kids? Raise your hand if you got kids. No, raise them like you love your kids. Okay, good. You have children. I have children. I have six children. And there are times in our house where my children worship things of little value, that there's some bare unicorn plastic object made in China that becomes incredibly important to their life and to their peace of mind and to bringing them great joy. Amen, parents? Amen, you know, oh yeah, you know. You know the unicorn without the tail the flash on the back, and the thing that they just got yesterday, they didn't know about six weeks ago, matters in their heart and in their life. And here John is writing to us and he's saying that mankind did not repent of the works of their hands or of worshiping demons or of idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, or wood. Why does he say that? He says that because the issue is not the value of the idols. The issue is always our response to the idols. See, here's what I know about you. 
because I know this about me, because the scriptures are clear about this, that we are worshiping individuals. That we all laugh at our kids making such a huge deal about this little bitty thing that's little and plastic and rubber and fuzzy and whatever, right? And we go, get over it. It's just a little rubber fuzzy thing, unicorn thing. But then we get more refined in our tastes, don't we? And then our, our, our idolatry starts to change because now our idolatry isn't little bitty things that cost 25 cents that you can get in a gumball machine. Now they get a little bit more expensive, that they're not wood, they're stone. And they're not stone, they're bronze. And now they're not bronze, they're silver. And now they're not silver, but they're gold. And all along the way, mankind recognizes, and God recognizes about mankind, that we all have this worship problem. We all have this tendency to attach inordinate value to created things. And sometimes they're not even created things. It's people's perception of me, or it's my self-perceived maturity, or it's my degree that I just got, or it's the raise that I have, or it's the car that I drive, or it's the man or woman on my arm that I feel gives me significant and worth and peace and comfort and safety and delight and all of those things. And here in this chapter in Revelation, you have made things, demonic spirits, a refusal to repent in this in the crosshairs of sinful, darkened humanity who refuses to repent. Now, he says one more thing about these idols. See the last last little phrase there? That they cannot see, hear, or walk. They can't give true spiritual sight. They don't hear your prayers and they can't move towards you at all. Do you have a cross-reference there at that verse? It's either Psalm 115 or Psalm 135. Do you have that? Somebody move your head in some direction. Thank you, Melissa. Okay, to both of you. Psalm, let's look at Psalm. We're gonna do, I, you go to two places here on this. I want to show you this from Psalm 135. Keep your finger there in, in Revelation 9 again. Use your other finger to go back into Psalms. You don't know where Psalms are, just find the middle of your Bible and you should open up and and land there. Psalm 135 and then flip in a direction. Left or right, wherever you are. Look at Psalm 135. I want to look at Psalm 135, verse 15. Psalm 135, verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of human hands. Does that sound familiar? They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not hear. They have ears, I'm sorry, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. I want to read that one more time, just that last part, because we saw the idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, right? They, they can't hear, they can't walk, they can't see, they can't respond, they can't do anything, but the problem shows up in the last verse right there. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Now come back to the book of Revelation. Here's the scary thing about this passage. The scary thing about this passage and the refusal to repent is that 
mankind's refusal to repent is not momentary. That your worship, this is a principle in the Bible, your worship is not momentary and experiential alone. It's not I come to church and I had a good worship experience and I go about my life. Worship, biblically, according to Psalm 135, 115, and what's happening here in Revelation chapter 9, it's forming you. It's changing you. You with me? That that it's so serious that you are becoming like what you worship. I use this text when I talk to, to couples in premarital. And I talk about if you bring spiritual idolatry into your marriage, at some point there will be a conflict that is so stubborn and so irrational that you will become so insensitive because of what you're worshiping in that moment that you are losing spiritual sensitivity. You are becoming, in your worship, either harder or softer to true spiritual realities. Please don't miss that. Because by the end of Revelation chapter 9, the scary thing is not demons. The scary thing is that mankind will not turn. That you can lose half the population on earth and mankind will still go, I will worship the thing that will bring me death. That's the irrationality of sin. It's the darkness of sin. It's the hardness of sin. You know, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3. The same principle shows up when you are worshiping Jesus Christ, however. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this, is that we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of one degree of glory to another. What's he saying? That your worship of Jesus Christ is changing you. It's shaping you and refining you and transforming you into the very person and image of Christ. This is why worship in the scriptures might be the the ultimate issue. Because the danger when you worship is that you become like what you worship. It's woven into who we are. That's how God made us. God made us as worshiping beings. That means when we come to circumstances or people or relationships or opportunities, we are consistently making not right-wrong decisions, but beautiful, ugly decisions, wonderful, despicable decisions that we are saying this is to be desired, to be pursued, to be worshiped, to be made much of is this thing over here. And these things on this side are not valuable and not important. And those decisions that are happening in your heart are truly who you are. It's who you are honestly. Verse 21 nor did they repent of their murders, their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Commentators note that many of these are found in the Ten Commandments. False worship, murder, theft, sexual immorality, all within the Ten Commandments, God's law given to his people. Now, 
I, as a church, I don't want us to play with Christianity. I don't want this to be an exercise in getting biblically smarter. I don't want you to trade a smart mind. I'm sorry, I don't want you to trade a soft heart for a smart mind. I don't want you to come in here and to come into situations in your life and not recognize what is going on. That there is a war out there for your heart. A war. And this should scare you. So I started by asking this question, what is the one spiritual practice that you can do right now that will allow you greater intimacy with God, greater relationship and fellowship with others, and greater opportunity for spiritual maturity? You know what it is? It's repentance. Because let's be honest, if, if I'm not repenting, it's not like I'm not sinning, right? Yeah, you don't want to admit that, but that's true. You're not as righteous as you think you are, and I'm not as righteous as I think I am. And the thing that we avoid is actually confessing our sin and declaring that my righteousness is not as beautiful and holy as it ought to be is actually the very thing that I need to go to war for my heart. I want a soft heart towards God. Do you want that? Do you want God to draw near to you? Do you want to obey James 5 that, or 4 or whatever it is, humble yourselves before the Lord? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Do you want that? Or are you content with fake righteousness? Are you content with just looking good on Sunday and being happy out here, but inside this war that's going on for your heart where you hate unrighteousness and you hate the areas uh, where you would actually be exposed for who you are? Because listen, if you're harsh with your husband, you need to repent. If you come home, dad, and you bring the anger and the frustration and the bitterness of work or the client or the patient or the boss or whatever into your home and your kids experience your anger at your boss, client, patient, whatever, into your home, you need to repent. If you are spending money on things for pleasure and not for the purposes of God, inordinate amounts and you refuse to be generous with your money toward the purposes of God, you need to repent. If you gossip and slander about your mate to other people, you need to repent. If you're hiding the drinking problem or the drug problem or refuse to live in purity with the girl or man that you are dating, you need to repent. Because what is happening in those moments is changing you and you don't even realize it. If you are justifying your sin and explaining it away, you need to repent. If you're saying now, Steve, you don't understand the pressure I'm under and you don't know why it's okay for me to be sinning, 
then you need to be honest and repent. We do this with our kids. I don't let my kids, and I do this with me, so I model this with my kids. My kids have this tendency to go, I'm sorry I did something wrong. And I go, no, 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 no. I'm sorry for what? Because you don't get specific grace for general repentance. You get specific grace for specific repentance. So when I sin against my kids and use my words and tone in a way that is harsh, I stop, and this is exhausting because it happens a lot. I'm sorry, that was sin. It's not pleasing to Jesus. It's not kind to you. Will you forgive me? Because the heart of my kid matters. Right, parents? And if you don't model it, do you know what they're going to see? Fake righteousness. Steve, I'm going to be repenting all the time. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Let's just say it together. Yes. Yes, you're going to be repenting all the time. Because you're constantly in this worship war for your heart. You're constantly recognizing the words that I use, my tone of, did you, you know, I was not that much of a sinner when I was single. There were some sins I had. Then I got married and I discovered I was a way bigger sinner than I thought I was. Then I had kids and I got worse. And God loves you enough to bring you into these circumstances where you have these opportunities to go, God, I blew it again. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That was sin. And God in his grace draws near to us and forgives our sins and reminds us of Christ and this beautiful reality for us as a church. But you're going to be repenting a lot. And it's the single thing that you don't want to do because it's embarrassing and you think you're more righteous and you've got to confess and it takes work and you don't have time because you've got to do the thing and it's so busy and I, I will just get to it later. But I care enough about your heart to say these things, right? And you should care enough about my heart to say these things to me and we ought to be walking together in repentance. Here's what Calvin said. You know, Jesus begins his preaching ministry. You know what he begins with? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist begins his baptism ministry proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. The Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. How often should you be confessing sin? As much as you pray. It ought to be a part of it. Calvin says this, John Calvin. You don't believe me? Listen, John Calvin. Uh, The exercise of repentance ought to be uninterrupted throughout our whole life. Luther, you don't believe me? Believe the German. Releads this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, I'm telling you to repent because I need to repent and we need to be a repenting people. Amen? I'm sorry if you don't like it. I'm sorry if I'm pressing on nerves. I'm sorry if that's happening, but I pray that you would turn, repent, find forgiveness, grace, and mercy from Jesus Christ and restore your relationships and your relationship with him. Okay? Now, we could leave all feeling sad about how little repenting we're doing, but I want to tell you one big thing that is so important for us as a church. 
I don't shepherd all the churches out there. This is the church I shepherd. This is the church I care about. I care about your sin, your heart, who you are, how you're walking with Christ. And I want to show you one verse that is the answer to repenting people and the tendency we have to not want to do this. Turn to Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3 quotes a psalm. We read it this morning during our prayer time. When we come together uh, on Sunday morning as a staff and worship team, we all pray right here in this big circle area. And we read Psalm 95 together. Psalm 95 is a psalm that talks about God's goodness and grace and kindness in creation and in calling us the sheep of his pasture. And then he goes on, Psalm 95 ends bad, uh, but it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 3. Look at Hebrews 3. Back to your left, Jude, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 2nd, 1st John, 1st, 2nd Peter, Hebrews. You there? Hebrews 3, here's what it says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, today if you hear his voice, if you come to church and hear the preached word of God, you ought to respond. Okay? That should be a part of the normative experience of hearing the word of God, that you should respond to what God says, to the truth that goes forward. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't listen to the word of God and let it flow over you and go, ah, it's not for me, but I know somebody who really ought to listen to that sermon. That's bad application. Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their what? In their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What's he talking about? He's talking about the nation of Israel who saw God's redemption. They came out of Egypt and they got all the way to the promised land and they did the 10 were bad and two were good. Remember that? No, four of you remember that from VBS. Ten spies go into the land. They all go, ah, it's too much. We can't do it. We can't go in. It's that God does not, he doesn't care about us. We brought us up. We're all going to die. The giants are there. It's over. And Joshua and Caleb come back and go, we can do it. God said he can do it. He's going to do it. He's going to go in. And everybody goes, nah. And God goes, you're all going to die in the wilderness for 40 years. You're not going to enter into my promised rest. Now, the writer of Hebrews applies that principle of hardening your heart or softening your heart. How are you going to respond to the truth of God? What are you going to do? And the greatest danger for you in this room or somebody who's watching online is thinking that because you have seen no tangible consequences for your rebellion and refusal to repent, that there are none coming. And you think you can be disobedient to your parents, disrespectful to your spouse. You can be uh, a gossip and a slander, and you don't see any immediate consequences. But the consequences are forming as your feet are in concrete. And you go, Steve, I don't need to repent right now. Nothing's bad about my life. I can sin, and there's no big deal. And now the Hebrew writer, Hebrews writer applies this. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers. Literally, take, uh, you know that 1 Corinthians 10, uh, let he who stands take heed lest he fall. Is the same phrase here. It means to look out. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Do you ever bring an evil, unbelieving heart to your day? See, you don't want to admit it. Nobody, nobody goes, yeah, I'm bad. 
Take care. Lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's that serious. But now imagine. Imagine a church that took the reality of our worship seriously, who understood with and for one another what is at stake. Imagine the kind of people we would be if we really believed that our worship with one another and to God and in our hearts mattered. Because the answer, because you feel, I feel this when I read the scriptures and I go, ah, my personal sin is eating my lunch again. My personal sin is eating my lunch again. And the answer to help and hope in this is not individual personal disciplines per se. Look at the application that the writer gives in verse 13. But exhort who? One another. How often? Every day, as long as it's called? Say today. Today, how did it start? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, but encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me challenge you to do one thing. Take out your phone. You got it? I'm gonna give you one thing that would make our church fantastic. It's pretty good now. But we're gonna, we could hit another gear. And let me show you how we could do it. This past, these past two weeks, we as a staff, pastor, and elder team reached out to every single one of our members and we wanna know how could we be praying for you. Here's what I want you to do. You take the top five, 10, four, one. You take the top two or three people that you're in consistent text relationship with. And I wanna challenge you that when you go to the word of God and you're reading the truth about who he is, that you take one step to obey this. Imagine if you had three or four friends who consistently encouraged your spiritual life. We've got 30 or so people that are getting ready to join our church. Imagine if they joined this church and people took responsibility for one another to say, I believe in what God is doing in you. I believe that he is at work in your life and in your spirit, and I am praying that God would be fully formed in you. Imagine what that would feel like. To where you had four or five people in this church who were constantly praying for you, constantly reaching out to you, intentionally. Do you get a lot of encouraging text messages? Let me tell you, I don't. I don't get a lot of them. I don't get a lot of encouraging emails, but imagine daily if we obeyed Hebrews 3.12. And daily we reached out to the people who were near to us saying, hey, I believe in what God is doing in you. I love you. I'm for you. Keep a soft heart. I don't know what, end it with something. Something good. I don't know, spiritual. Use a verse. Can you imagine what that would be like? To where your spirit, well, listen, your spiritual life matters to me. I can't text all of you every single day. I've got six kids. That's crazy. But we could do this. We could really do this. And it's easy. And the question is, does it matter? Does your heart matter to me enough for me to encourage you daily that you might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? I think we could do it. Because if nothing else, Revelation chapter nine is scary 
because men won't turn. And that's why you get the church. That's why we preach the word of God, because we believe that God meets us in the preaching of his word through the spirit of God to do things in our hearts that we cannot do for ourselves. And he uses the church and the grace of God to build us up and to encourage one another, to remind us of his goodness and his grace and that Jesus hasn't left us or forsaken us. And we need to hear that and sing that and preach that and tell that story. Amen? That we can do that. So next week, I want to see text messages flying. I want, remember when you used to have, only have so many? You couldn't do this back in like the early 2000s because you only had so many text messages. But now they're unlimited. You can do it. Let's do it. Father, we read Revelation chapter 9 and it sobers us. It scares us. It makes us nervous about our own hearts. And I pray that we might be the kind of people who keep a soft heart towards you, that we would draw near, that we would cleanse our hearts and wash our hands and draw near to you and that you might draw near to us and that you would do things in our hearts in spite of us because of your goodness and your grace and your mercy, that your kindness uh, would lead us to repentance, as Romans says. Father, we're so thankful for you. We're so thankful for Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.